you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19? 1 Kings chapter 19. And as we receive this word together, I'll invite you to stand with me. Because the Lord's laid this on my heart as we begin this Generations of Faith campaign. Beginning here with uh, verse 9, I want to kind of go into the middle of this uh, 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 passage, but uh, I hope you'll understand why I've done this when we are, are finished. But hear the word of the Lord. Beginning with verse 9, it says, And the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death, and the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahoyah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. May God add his blessing to that word. Please, you can be seated now. It's a fascinating passage. Sometimes when God shows up, everything changes. Everything changes. Elijah here, we see him in a funk. He is depressed and tired and disgusted and disappointed with the people of Israel. Perhaps he's also disappointed and doubtful of God himself. But then God shows up, and he meets Elijah exactly where he is, and everything becomes different. I want you to know that I've been praying that God would show up in our church in a fresh and new way. It might be in an earthquake, or maybe through a worship song. It might be a powerful wind, or even a great sermon. 
It might come through a fire falling down from heaven, or maybe it just comes because God's people fall down on their knees, or maybe it just comes in a gentle whisper. But are you ready to listen to him? Are your hearts ready this morning to hear what he has to say? If he comes in that still, small voice, are we ready to respond? You know, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be asking you to do something that I think is, quite frankly, hard. It's hard for me to ask because I know it's hard for all of us to do. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment. On Sunday, November 20th, I'm going to ask our entire congregation to make a three-year commitment to give over and above regular offerings for our Generations of Faith campaign. The story continues because we have, a wor we have work to do as a church. The vision our leadership has set forth and established is this one. I'll share it with you. Our vision is to raise $1 million over three years to service our debt and provide for needed capital improvements while discipling our friends in generosity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you were here in 2016, and you remember those days because we were setting about and making the decision that we needed to raise at least a million dollars to even consider building our 3.2 million dollar dream of expanding this facility but you know to my surprise and almost to my chagrin we did it we raised that those funds and we built and we accomplished our goals at that time we knew we would have to do it again however to continue to pay down the cost of the church building in other words, you can't buy a $3.2 million building for $1 million. And so that time has now come in 2022. Right now, at present, we owe about $1.8 million. And so we have made the decision, it's time for us to commit to raising another $1 million to reduce our debts and pay these obligations. Now that's where you come in. That's where I come in. And I'm going to ask you to consider to prayerfully commit with your church family that we can ensure that this place is a place where the gospel is going to continue to be preached and where we keep on loving people to life in Jesus Christ. I don't have to tell you, I think, that we need strong, healthy churches in our communities, in our society. North Olmstead needs North Olmstead Evangelical Friends Church. Now, I know this is true. Commitment is a scary word. G.K. Chesterton had this observation. He said, The man who makes a vow makes an appointment with himself at some distant time or place. And the truth is, even small commitments can make us uneasy. Hey, would you like to come over on Friday night? Well, maybe we'll see. Well, what would you hear in that response? Well, I might just get a better offer, so I'm going to hold out, right? Something better might come along. I don't want to miss it. And so we, we hesitate on making a commitment. Making a commitment is scary because a commitment is a promise about the future. But in the future, things might change. 
What if I promise to marry you? And then you change. What if I promise to marry you and I change? What if I promise to follow God, but tomorrow I don't feel like he's close to me, he's near me? What if things change? So we avoid commitment. We'd rather be uncommitted. And the word we think we are gaining and the uh, obsession that we go after is this word free. We think by being uncommitted that we're free. We're free to do what we want. When I'm committed, I'm bound. And as long as I'm not committed, then I'm free to do what I want to do and go where I want to go and eat what I want to eat and experience anything that I desire at that moment. I want to be free. So the conventional wisdom, the worldly wisdom, is whatever you do, avoid commitment, and then you're free. Don't get committed, because then you're bound. But I want to tell you, there is another way to think. And it's not popular. The Bible teaches that those who are uncommitted are the ones who are in bondage. A person who has no commitments becomes a slave to whatever desires come along to a life of petty sin. And so Jesus put it like this. He said, if you obey my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He said, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He says, if you obey me, if you promise to follow me, if you make a commitment to follow me, you will experience freedom and life and truth. But if you are free to do whatever you want, you become a slave to sin. And the reality is you're not free at all. What's amazing to me is if you look at the gospel record, it turns out the sum of our commitments add up to how free we really are. So commitment frees us. It's hard work, but it's nothing to be afraid of. I think marriage is a pretty good example here. I made a commitment to my wife, Mary, some 20-some years ago. I won't go into I probably couldn't. I can't remember how long ago it was now. But some, some time ago in a small church in Pennsylvania, I made a commitment, and she made a commitment to me. Now, the world calls that, well, that's the old ball and chain. But in reality, I'm freed up. Free to love my wife and her alone and experience her love for me. I'm not concerned about whether something else is going to come along. Because that decision has been made. So I can experience fully intimacy and joy and testing and good days and bad days together because of our commitment toward one another. But you know there's another reason that I should make commitments? I'm created in the image of God. And guess what kind of God we have? He's a commitment-making, promise-keeping kind of God when we when we honor our commitments when we make commitments and we honor our commitments we are becoming more like God you realize animals can't make commitments 
Your goldfish can't make a commitment. Only human beings can say, I'll meet you next Thursday. I'm going to keep that secret. I'll pay that bill. I'll be your friend. I will pray for you. I will serve on that team with you. I've got your back. You know, your dog can't make that promise. If they could, they would, and they'd die trying, but, but they can't. Your cat can't make that promise. If they could, they would, and then they'd break it, and they'd laugh in your face because that's <laughs> the way cats are, right? People who follow God are naturally commitment makers. Not just that, people who follow God, I believe, make make uh, uh, are often found making what the world looks like the world looks at us and says that's an outrageous silly commitment to make and yet people who follow God do it with joy I want us to think about one person this morning we've already introduced him and let's let's think about his story Elijah has had this encounter with God and God says Elijah, I'm not done with you yet. Elijah, I've got work for you to do. And one of the things I want you to do is I want you to find your replacement. So let me just read this passage again in 1 Kings 19. I'll, I'll just read verse 19 and 20 for now. The Lord said, uh, no, 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 down here in verse 19. So Elijah went from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen, ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my mother, or father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come back with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? Now, I want you to get a sense of the drama of this moment. Elijah is an old man. He's standing in this field. There's plowing going on. He lets 11 pair of oxen go by, and then he walks toward Elisha. He takes off his cloak or his mantle, and he throws this mantle, a symbol of his office of being a prophet, his symbol of God's work, of his life's work, and he throws this on Elisha. And the meaning to both is clear. Elisha, God has a job for you to do. I want you to leave all of this. Now, I want you to gain perspective here because this does leave out a little bit of detail. I would want to know if suddenly I was given this decision to make about what this job would entail. I'd like to know what is the health plan like? How many weeks of vacation will I get? If Elisha is going to be a prophet, and Elijah already is a prophet, is there kind of a prophet-sharing plan involved here? Uh, okay, I thought that was pretty good. But, uh... <laughs> but we know this about Elisha. We know he's got 12 teams of oxen at work. In that day, Elisha is a person of staggering wealth. He's got options. He has a bright future. He is a golden boy. He can have any woman in the village he wants. And yet, 
You want me to attach myself to this penniless preacher and face a life of opposition and danger and sacrifice? Seriously, Elijah? What's he going to do if something better comes along? Something better has already come along. He has 12 teams of oxen, 24 oxen. And that's what we know. This is a very dramatic moment. Elisha has one request. He says, well, let me go back to my father and mother and say goodbye, and then I will come to you. Now, now this seems reasonable, and yet even you get a sense of Elijah's testy response here. He says, go ahead, what have I done to you? You can almost hear the wheels turning in Elijah's mind. I'm betting when he runs home to mommy, daddy's going to tell him about the trust fund and the keys to the car and the vacation home. He's going to bail. I'll probably never see the guy again. But Elijah does something very important here. He gives Elisha space. He says, okay, you need to think about this. You need to take time. You need to think what is happening here. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to pressure you. You must decide. And a good church is going to do that. A good church is not going to, to, to force you into a commitment. You've got to make your own decision. You've got to decide what God is calling you to do. And here's the thing. Elisha does decide. He decides to say yes to God. E e Elisha comes back and he says to the old prophet Elijah, I'm all set. There's just one more thing I need to do. And I love this. The Bible says he took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Now do you get the picture there? He's all in. He, he, he killed the oxen. The oxen don't like that part of the story, but uh, it's, it's part of what God or what Elijah is doing. The idea here is that he is offering this sacrifice, and it is a picture, it represents that Elisha is offering his entire life, his entire being to God. The sacrifices we make are a picture of something larger. His sacrifice in that moment was a way of saying, God, I'm all yours. And he makes it public. Everyone could see this. And boy, I love this. He turns this sacrifice into a party. He gives the meat to the people. Do you know how much meat you can get off of a side of a beef? Never mind just two whole? One side of beef is huge. He sat, his sacrifice, listen, benefited others. So if kissing his parents goodbye and killing his oxen, and offering a sacrifice, and going public wasn't enough, he does this one other thing that caught my eye. He burns the plow. You know what that means. I, I used to be a farmer, but no more. 
There, there's no going back now. I, I cannot return to that old life. I, I burned the plow. And so where there are doubts, and for Elisha there will be, he thinks, I, I don't know if I'm the man of God. He's going to say to himself, I can't go back. I burned the plow. When the king wants to kill him and the Arameans come out to surround him, when a famine is starving him, when Israel rejects him so utterly that he weeps at his failure, the one thing he knows is this. I can't go back. I burned the plow. That way of life is cut off from me now. There is no retreat. God, I'm yours completely. Some of you may recall this story. I remember reading it when I was in junior high. Of, in 1519, a conquistador named Hernando Cortez landed in Veracruz, Mexico to win glory in the New World. He came from Spain with 500 soldiers and 100 sailors on 11 ships. When they landed, they were filled with uncertainty and fear, and of course they were in the New World, and some of them, many of them, just wanted to turn around and go back. But Cortez was famous for his order. He told them to burn the ships. In other words, going back isn't an option. We're going to succeed or we will die. We will we will flourish or we will perish. But either way, we will not run away. We are committed, burn the ships. Now, if you've heard that story, you've probably heard it through a motivational speaker. You know, that's a, that's a story that's told often. But you know, the reality is we're a church and we care about truth and that should be a big deal to us. The truth is they didn't actually burn the ships. They scuttled them. They, they, they kind of put them in storage somewhere. They left one ship completely intact for bringing treasure back to Spain and a few leaders just in case things didn't work out. But it turns out, as you know, that Cortez was not especially kind to the Aztecs, the people already living in the New World. I want to describe that or at least remind you of that story because of this. It's important because we're not called to glorify commitment all by itself. If commitment is attached to the wrong thing, it can do a lot of damage. You know, if a, a football player has an overpowering commitment to, to win the Super Bowl, whatever it takes, but he doesn't have that same commitment toward his marriage by honoring his wife, then that's a problem. If a business person has an unquenchable commitment to be a success, but a quenchable commitment to his family, that's actually idolatry. Ultimate commitment to a non-ultimate value is idolatry. But when a human being makes a commitment to an ultimate value, to a, to a supremely wonderful God, when a human being says, I don't care how hard it gets. I, I, I don't care how high the cost. I am not going back. I am yours, O oh Lord. I am not turning around. I have charboiled the ox. I have kissed off the trust fund. I have given up the keys. The ships are smoking in the harbor. I will burn that plow. 
I believe that a power gets released on earth that is incredible to behold. And so church, this is what I'm asking of you. And by the way, this is beyond asking for a three-year commitment to a campaign for such and such an amount of money. Can I ask you, when it comes to this church and this ministry and to serving together, committing together, can we burn the plow? Can we decide to burn the plow? I'm weary of hearing people who say, well, you know, I just don't like the worship. I'm leaving. I'm tired of people who say, well, if you're going to get personal and ask me for a commitment financially, I'm done. Folks, we're a community. And when you make a commitment to be a member here, you become a part of our family. You know, when Mary and I got married, we became a family. And in a church, we are a family. And you don't walk away from family. See, in, in a company, if you get a pink slip, you go to your supervisor and you say, hey, you can't do this to me. I'm family. And the supervisor will say, no, you used to be family. Now you're fired. But in a good family, you can't get fired. Guys, what makes a family is not the birth of a child. Listen to this. What makes a family is a promise, a commitment. I could say to my kids, I'm your dad because I'm committed to your mom and I'm committed to you. You might do anything. You might break the rules. You might disobey God. You might break my heart. I'll still be your dad. I will never stop loving you. It's a promise that we make toward each other. And the church is supposed to be something like that. That's why, by the way, we care about the next generation. We make a commitment to them to make sure that they are handled, handed the mantle of faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel that never changes. Listen, if you're visiting this morning, or maybe you're watching online, and you're not a follower of Jesus you're just thinking about faith. You're just testing it out. I hope you will consider this. I hope that you will make a commitment to Jesus because he is the only true path to freedom and life and wholeness. And yes, Jesus wants to be a part. He wants you to be a part of a committed group of people called the church. And no, that's not easy. Families are complicated. But if you are part of our church, if you are a follower of Jesus, I just have to tell you, I pray, I ache, that we will be the kind of church that thrills to be called to total and outrageous commitments to Jesus Christ. Are we willing to burn the plow? In Acts 2... You have, uh, if, if you know your Bibles, Acts 2 is Pentecost. And 
in Acts 2, Peter preaches his first gospel message after the Holy Spirit falls. And this is his first words. He quotes from the prophet Joel, and he says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesize. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Boy, there's generations of faith, generations of faithfulness there. He says, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Elijah took the mantle, that cloak, and he placed it on Elisha and he became a prophet. But do you see what Peter is saying? God has taken the mantle, he's taken the cloak, and he's placed it on every one of us who believes. And it's time for us to get serious and burn the plow. Burn the plow and follow Jesus. Because Jesus came to earth, nothing better is coming along. And we can make a great commitment to him because he has made such a great commitment to us. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray over these next several weeks we would have the opportunity to hear your voice. And Lord, sense that you are placing a mantle of responsibility and a calling on each of us to make such a difference for your kingdom. Lord, you've brought us to this place and to this time. And Lord, I just pray that uh, instead, of, instead of seeing a commitment as a heavy burden, we would see it as a joy of opportunity where, Lord, we in fact can experience your grace in new ways. Lord, I pray that your people will learn to trust you and put you first. May we burn the plow because you are good. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.